Welcome to Whisking It All with your host, Angela Spazito, co-founder of Whisk.ai, a food and beverage intelligence platform. We're going to be interviewing hospitality professionals around the world to really understand how they do what they do. From chefs to owners, mixologists to bar managers, you name it, we want to provide you guys with a ton of value, anything hospitality Welcome to Whisking It All. Today we're here with John Cicero, Vice President of Team Enterprises. What's John, up, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. You look great. You look like you're in sunny Florida. Yes, absolutely. Love it here. Good weather, good vibes, good people. So I'd love to start off with just a little background on what is Team Enterprises? That's a great question. Team Enterprises is an experiential marketing agency that I've been with. It was 16 years last week, which is crazy to think about. But essentially, we're a 360 experiential shop that does a series of things from uh, large-scale experiential, from big events, essentially, that aren't really happening at the, for the time being with the pandemic. We do national sampling campaigns, road tours. We do a lot of design work, like package design, that kind of thing, social media management, so on and so forth. So anything within this, the live space with consumers, but also with some of the support tools like social, for example. Gotcha. And one of the things I found interesting kind of about your background is that you started off in a hospitality space. Obviously, you're still very much involved, but transitioned to the marketing agency side of things. To people listening, on other episodes, we've chatted more about going from bartender or from busboy and working your way up to manager. But your trajectory is a little different going from bartender or other positions, which we'll get into, to the marketing side. So I'd love to hear your story of how you got into hospitality in the first place. So I went to college at University of Iowa. And right after that, I, I took a job in politics, actually, with Illinois House of Representatives in Chicago. So we're doing a lot of grassroots campaign management. I was a policy analyst is my actual title. But it was my, I call it my first job in marketing, just because it was instead of a product, you have a person, obviously. And a lot of times right. the, the backing wins, if you will. So yeah, it was a crash course in terms of, I guess, what was going to be down the road. But I did that for two years. And then I started working with Sobe Beverages at the time. If you remember the lizards, like the really sugary mm -hmm. drink, they also had something called Sobe Adrenaline Rush. Like uh, it was pre-Red Bull, but worked at them for three years and did national marketing campaigns, did some music tours, a motocross tour with them as like sponsorship support. And then from there, traveled for a year. And then came back overseas and took a job with team, moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, and started doing working on the Miller Coors account, which is one of our biggest clients at team still to this day. But really started doing with managing Indiana, Kentucky, and Ohio and managing a, a team of women that managed about 200 promo specialists per person, which made it very interesting. It was a lot of, yeah, it was an overwhelming experience to say the least, but it was a good one and something I learned, learned a lot from. And then Moved to Chicago from there, worked, it was a promotion, worked for the Miller Coors again, but did a lot of sports sponsorships with the White Sox, the Bears. And then after that, I moved to Miami for the first time. And this was really my first taste of the hospitality industry is what the way I know it today, just in terms of the ambassador, more on the spirit side of things. 42 Blow was acquired by Bacardi, which is a, a high-end New Zealand vodka, mm -hmm. which is still around, but it's hard to find. And launched a, for Bacardi, it was one of the first brand ambassador programs that they had. And it was really fun just because we got the chance to go out and find some of the guys I'm still friends with to this day. But 
I was tasked with going to find really irreverent, unique individuals that were going to represent this brand because it was that kind of brand. So they had artists, a circus performer, and just a bunch of yahoos. It was a lot of fun. And doing a lot of, let, let's call it a non-premise kind of events of getting a, a, a unique drinker at that point. So did that for two years. And then we were acquired actually, Team Enterprises by MDC Partners, which is actually a, a okay. company out of Toronto based in New York. But one of the biggest holding companies in the world from an advertising perspective, they have, I want to say about 35 agencies. We're one of the only experiential shops within that. Once that happened, I moved to Boulder, Colorado to start working out of the Chris and Porter of Bogusky office, which is a, a big above the line shop, which was really hot back then. Did a lot of stuff for like Burger King and American Express so on and so forth. Did the truth campaign against cigarettes and tobacco back in the day, which they were known for, but started working with them and harnessing their client base and building out experiential programs as a result of that, which was modestly successful. We got some big wins out of it. And then after a year doing that, moved to New York and started working with uh, Kirshen Bond, Seneca and Partners, which is another advertising firm doing something very similar, work with a lot of like BMW worked with at the time, Vanguard Financial Services. And then it was unique for me just because it allowed me to really get a, a glimpse of how above the line advertising worked. Because at that point, it was pretty much mm -hmm. just like blocking and tackling on the ground experiential stuff right. that's not too sexy on its face, but a lot of fun. So this gave me a, a glimpse at the other side. And then after Doing that for two years, living in New York, I moved back to Miami for the second time. This is about 11, 12 years ago now, and started officially the Bacardi advocacy team structure. So we launched with uh, Bacardi portfolio managers, which had more account responsibilities. But these are, at the time, it was more craft cocktail, boutique hotel, fine dining. So like that kind of, uh, okay. that was our universe we we're going after at the time. So really lended itself to like high-end cocktail. And this is right at the time also when the cocktail renaissance had really started to come about where people noticed like, oh, people are paying attention to what they're drinking, the farm to table movement. And it really just made a lot of sense in terms of how to complement a lot of the efforts that Bacardi already had in the field. But it took a while to get there. I think we're there now from a, a Bacardi standpoint, that is. But just in terms of believing what is advocacy, what is trade advocacy, what does that mean? Because at the beginning, as a lot of people think, when you have ambassadors, it's not just all about going out and doing laybacks at the bar and spending a bunch of money and going to fancy dinners. Mm -hmm. That is part of right. it because you're from a, I guess, right. the entertainment standpoint, but it's not the goal. Obviously, it's to drive recommendations for the brands and people have different ways of doing that. So anyways, yeah. And then I yep. did that for three years and became a vice president with team about three and a half years ago managing not just the advocacy piece, but a lot of the other stuff we do. We have a, a pretty large client service team that met, works with each of the brands and builds up the programming, a, a national sampling team with 12,000 promo specialists that do more like the liquid, mm -hmm. the lips on and off premise. And then we have an incubation team that does a lot of our hand sell kind of marketing, if you will. So the, the smaller brands we deal with like Oxley Gin and Santa Teresa and so on and so forth. Yeah. Which brings me here gotcha. today. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and for a lot of our listeners, right, they're, they're coming from the hospitality world, whether it's restaurant, bars, hotels. We have people tuning in who are actual producers as well. So a big part of what you touched on is the experiential side of things. And so I'd love to hear some campaigns specifically on the spirit side, hospitality side that you've worked on and what was the outcome? For sure. What I'm about to say, all these things are listed a cheap plug at teamenterprises.com. But just if they want, if people want to see <laughs> case studies and videos and that kind of thing, but just because I might not do them justice explaining them. This is the part I most missed through the pandemic is the building these kind of large scale engagement programs, if you will, with the trade, just because obviously we can't do them for obvious reasons for the time being. But 
One of the biggest ones we did, and before I even go into these, we started looking at these as a way to scale our program. So it wasn't just going after one bartender at a time, which we still were, but it's a way to really go more of a mass approach and bring more and more people into our engagements. So Mm -hmm. one of the the coolest ones I think that we've done is Casadora's Bar Spar. At the beginning, it was called Bartender Boxing, but it was a time when that health and wellness really played a big role in the bartending community. I lost a good friend of mine, John LeMayer, and it was just a lot of, we started, people started realizing that the bartending lifestyle probably wasn't the healthiest lifestyle to be living and and the ambassador lifestyle mm-hmm. really, but just to have a balance of some sort. So one of the things we did was created this program where we partnered with a nonprofit within the boxing space and we're putting bartenders through um, a rigorous 12-week training for boxing. So they would go, I think, three times a week and go through this. Obviously, the camaraderie piece that came from that was unbelievable. It wasn't trying to be a self-serving campaign for Casadoras, although there it was brought to you by Casadoras Tequila. But it was something I think that right. generated a lot of affinity towards the brand because they did this. And one of the first ones that did something like this in somewhat of an unselfish way was really more about giving back to the community. And then what we would do is have each of the cities box against each other. So there'd be live boxing matches. We'd invite the trade to in a very sweaty, right. like old boxing gym. It's pretty awesome. And then we'd have everyone yeah, compete. I, at, I remember actually, at Tales of I was the going to say real quick, I actually, yeah, Tales of the Costa. <laughs> I remember seeing it. It was, it was intense to say the least, but super cool to see the different cities competing. And the other thing that was really cool was to see how small the hospitality scene is in a way, right? Everyone's so close and kind of like you mentioned that camaraderie from Vegas to Miami to Toronto, you name it. But seeing that connection between the hospitality industry was really neat. It's one of my favorite parts of this industry. You know, what's happened over the last 10 years, I think is it's really given bartenders, barbacks, waitstaff, something to look at as a North Star, how to move up. And you have situations where I think this is still blossoming, but that bartenders are becoming rock star, celebrity kind of chef format, the Emerald Legacies of the world, that kind of thing. But as far as the camaraderie that exists within that group is is really unbelievable, which is awesome. But also sometimes I feel like when we're running the programs we were just talking about, it's almost like we're speaking to ourselves sometimes. We're talking to the (laughs) same people. So it's like trying to, our biggest test, how do we broaden that community and cast a a larger net, so to speak. Right. No, that makes a ton of sense. And I noticed on the website, one uh, campaign that caught my eye was, I don't want to butcher it. I think it's called Know Your Beer. Yep. That's pretty neat because that was pretty much across all of the states or almost all the states, no? Yeah. So when I moved to Cincinnati, we were doing something called the Miller Taste Challenge. And it was basically pitting Miller Lite uh, against Bud Light in terms of the the flavor of the two beers in terms of doing a blind taste test. And Miller Mm -hmm. Lite was being chosen, I think, 80%. Um, of the time. So it was like, we just kept going and going with this campaign. Know Your Beer was an evolution of that in a way, but it didn't just polarize it to Miller Lite versus Bud Light, but allowed consumers to have different touch points within the Miller course portfolio of how they can get involved. So we'd have, be it off-premise or on-premise, where someone would come up to the table and obviously they have the entire line there, their portfolio offering, and you can f- figure out what your taste profile is and really explore different things you probably wouldn't have. Obviously, the beer category in general has exploded. And I think I'm even confused sometimes of what's new out there and what, what I like. That's why I go back to the Miller High Life and Coors Light sometimes, the basics. That's awesome. And then I want to touch on one last one real quick, just because it really caught my eye. And I'm curious just to get some insights and share this with our guests. It was a campaign on Havana Club. And it was a quite an interesting campaign. It really caught my eye. Apparently, it was hugely successful. So I'd love for you to maybe just share on 
how you guys came up with that concept and maybe share the concept itself and what were the outcomes of that campaign? If you didn't get a chance to experience Amparo, which is what it was called, which is Jose Archibala's wife. Jose Archibala was the founder of Havana Club in Cuba. But this campaign was an interesting task. It's one of the coolest things we've done as an agency just in general, but we're able to create an immersive theater experience actually took over an old you know, 1920s building downtown Miami and converted into Cuba, old school 1930s, 40s Cuba. We created this experience where we pretty much built out the entire space. We sold tickets for, they were going at one point for $150, $200 and selling out every day, which is amazing. Oh, wow. And this ran, we were supposed to be a one month show, which ended up going for just shy of a year. And I'll go into the story behind it, but the, the, the coolest thing about it was it was an experiential campaign that was paying off itself. So it wasn't just a one-way thing where we're fueling kind of the activation. It was, we're covering the cost of the activation because it was ex extremely expensive between, I think we had every show, there's 30 actors. We had a bartender's bar backs, a restaurant pop-up, so on and so forth. But it was quite the ordeal. But the story behind it, and if, if no one wow. knows a Havana Club story, please check it out. Just if you Google Bacardi and Pernod yep. Ricard Havana Club, you'll get so much info about the story behind that. And it's been a 30 year, 30 plus year legal battle in terms of you still can't buy the Pernod Havana Club in the United States. And you, you can only buy the Bacardi Havana Club in the United States. And the reasons behind that in terms of the embargo, whatnot's pretty interesting. But with Amparo specifically, it was how do we, with Bacardi's Havana Club, a rum that the bartending community usually just automatically thinks the Cuban Havana Club. How do we engage them in an authentic way where it tells the story of basically the premise of Amparo is that when Castro nationalized the country, he kicked out Jose Ashabala and stole Havana Club and started producing it and then partnered with Pernod Ricard, formed a company called Cuban Export and started producing that globally. And Jose Archibala died as a car mechanic in Miami just because he never really invented himself, but he sold the recipe to Facundo Bacardi and they started making his rum with his recipe. So there's this like huge wow. rift or between the two and it's extremely complex and interesting and insane. But it was a really cool campaign. That's crazy. I never knew that story. It's, I'm definitely gonna Google that after this chat. That's quite interesting to say the least. One thing that came to mind was when it comes to marketing, branding, a lot of these liquor companies, it's really important to try to be right number one, top of mind. And in a day and age where I think people get easily offended, my question to you is how do you kind of balance that being number one, bringing those campaigns to life while also treading that line of not offending anyone, which is pretty much impossible these days, but how do you tread that line and how do you look at that? Because I can imagine things evolved over the last 10 years in terms of how these campaigns are perceived. What do you mean by offending anyone? Sorry, just so I'm clear. Yeah, yeah, no. When I say offending, I think that when I think about certain brands and certain campaigns, things that aren't offensive, I think, to anyone, but today as political correctness kind of gets more and more limelight, it's almost impossible not to offend someone. So I'm not talking about something obviously that may be offensive even 10 years ago. Gotcha, I'm talking gotcha. about, yeah, more from a culture perspective, people are so easily offended today that how do you guys as, as a brand come up with campaigns while knowing you got to just try not to offend anyone, knowing that people are easily offended. Got it. We have the luxury as team. So we, being that we're an experiential shop that works with Bacardi, we get to play more of the fun zone. Right, we're not building on a lot of the large okay. scale experiential big campaign commercials. 
what we do primarily is once those campaigns happen, once the more of the creative above the line shops will come up with the brand ethos, if you will, and what they're trying to achieve and who their right. consumer is and all that kind of stuff, we come in and we would build out what that campaign looks like on the ground. So the, the good part is we don't have to, gotcha. to deal with the, the political bullshit, if you will, behind a lot of, of that. Yeah. But I hear you saying it's in today's world, it's hard not to offend someone. And it's interesting because you have to tread so lightly in some cases where you, I think you risk not actually saying anything at all. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, with that, it limits creativity to a certain level, right? There's no creativity goes up. The more you try to check off the list of not offending anyone, the more you start limiting. And like you said, the danger of potentially not saying anything in the end. One thing I'd love to get your perspective on, right? Because team and, and, and yourself are really strong on all these experiential marketing campaigns. So I'd love to get your perspective. And I'm sure you've probably chatted to a lot of people about this, but how do you guys deal with this lockdown, this pandemic? knowing that a lot of your marketing campaigns are on-premise, are experiential, how are you guys adapting? Yeah, it's a great question. We are doing our best. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, I would say a large part of what we do for Bacardi and for other brands as well, pre-pandemic, and Bacardi currently is have an ambassador structure that's in the field. More or less the, those folks in the markets that represent the brands, in some cases, the portfolio depending on the role we're talking about. One of the things we're doing with those individuals, and obviously this is changing by the minute, by the city, state, county, so on and so forth. So it's been very challenging, obviously, especially in the last week, you could even look at just in terms of what's happening in Oregon, what's about to happen in New York, what happened in California, especially with the season kind of element coming into the mix here, we're constantly changing and adapting to what our people should be doing. So a big piece of what we've done, and a lot of companies have done this, so it's nothing unique, but it's shifting to the off-premise because that's where a lot of the business is right now. Instead of going into and dealing directly with bartenders, we're having people go into off-premise and dealing more with, with that side of the business, just again, because that's where things are right. spiking. I think well, one of the things we've done, which I'm proud of, and a lot of companies have done this as well, but in terms of the hospitality support, in terms of buying meals um, for people, we're doing initiative for the holidays. And a lot of people are really still struggling right now. I think some people mm -hmm. forget that, especially if you work on the brand side, you don't see sometimes, unless you're really immersed in the industry and have friends that own bars or restaurants, that people aren't making ends meet and they're really deciding, hey, should I open right now? Should I not open? I already opened once, we had to shut down, that kind of thing. So it's really been challenging to adapt in some ways because things are changing so quickly. But one of the things we're, we've done as an agency, we obviously from a virtual perspective, we have something called the Virtual Content Studio, which we developed. And it's essentially a way to have a virtual town hall or meeting, whatever it is, in a way where it's from a creative perspective, it's super unique. So basically we send, there's this six foot green screens that we can send anywhere in the world and you can get everyone in the same meeting. And it looks like you're all either at the same table or at the same bar. And it's pretty cool just from like when you're doing something, especially in the virtual world where, where people are not getting on planes to have these you know national meetings, it's a really cool way to bring all that together and, and something that people are interested in. Because as, as I'm sure you are as well, the fatigue going on right now with Zoom and Microsoft oh, Teams. Man. I can imagine. You probably have had 600 Zoom calls in the last few months or something. On that note, though, so Zoom just created a new platform called OnZoom. 
This is just about three weeks okay. ago. And Bacardi is the official food and beverage partner of OnZoom. So OnZoom is essentially a way, you've seen this, I'm sure, with Amazon experiences or OnZoom is essentially a way to monetize their user base and bring these experiences to life. So one of the things that we're doing as team to help support this initiative between Bacardi and Zoom or OnZoom is to have bartenders deliver different modules, whatever that may be, like a low ABV cocktails or whatever that is. And we're able to pay the bartenders right. to for their time to generate additional income for them. So it's something we're That's pretty still neat. testing it. We're I think we're on number six right now, six of eight in terms of the pilot. And then we're going to go into the more of the phase one, if you will. That's really cool. Yeah. One thing that comes to mind is a lot of people during this pandemic have had to deal with letting people go and then hiring back and then letting go again. And I think it's a super tricky thing, but I think you know, our listeners could definitely benefit from getting some insight. Just from your experience, you manage quite a lot of people to say the least. How do you guys deal with that dynamic of letting people go knowing that you do want them back and knowing that it's out of your control? Yeah. So Bacardi uh, is an organization and just so the listeners know, I am a I'm VP at team and I help manage overall everything on Bacardi. So I keep using Bacardi as a reference, but that's the reason why. But Bacardi is right. has been an unbelievable partner throughout this experience where they've really stood behind us as an agency. So a lot of like spirits agency relationships. If you look at the beginning, I'm not going to go through and name names of agencies and suppliers, but a lot of them let go of their agencies off the bat. So they they saw this coming on premise shutdown. We don't need you guys anymore. We'll call you when we need you kind of thing. And Bacardi's that did the opposite. Right. And I'm not just saying this because they're our client. This I really believe this. And they've been a client of ours for 30 years. And it's something that we're proud of as wow. an agency to have someone that long, but also that we're still evolving with them. And it's a pretty cool relationship that I've really enjoyed being a part of. But to answer your question, they've stood behind us. So it's allowed us to make different decisions. So instead of laying people off in a lot of cases, which we did have to do some layoffs in terms of producers or more of the large scale experiential kind of resources that we had, which is just something that's not happening right now. But most, the majority of what we had to deal with was furloughs. And for those of you who don't know what a furlough is, it's essentially a way to keep an employee retained, but put it's a pause, if you will, but we're still able to pay for their health benefits, which obviously in the pandemic during this is extremely important, especially those with families, but also keep their health insurance, but their benefits going and then we're ready to bring them back. It's, it's just pressing play and they jump back in. So it's right. not that makes it any easier because their compensation stops during that furlough period. Just from a business right. standpoint, it didn't make a lot of sense to keep them on for depending on the role in, in the market, kind of what I was saying before. But yeah, it's been, uh, we've tried to be obviously taking this very personally and be very specific and, and think through a lot of these things just so we're doing the right thing for the right reasons. And obviously Bacardi is the largest family owned uh, spirits company in the world. And they really perpetuate this La Grand Familia atmosphere, just like we're all one family. And that does right. translate to its partners as well as agency partners. So in that sense, they're uh, putting their money where their mouth is, which is pretty cool to see. That is awesome. That's awesome to hear. And I think we spoke about the good stuff, right? We spoke about some of the good stuff in terms of the campaigns, but without naming names, but I'd love to hear maybe from your perspective, if you can, maybe what was the biggest fumble you've had in a campaign? Like something that you didn't expect. If there's anything that our listeners can listen to on the marketing side, something you didn't expect that really caught you by surprise and when you know, you can, you'll never forget, so to speak. I don't know if it was a campaign fumble just in terms of the ideation of the direction we went. Usually we have so many people working on these things or 
that we have enough experience. We're not going to put something out there that's a complete disaster. But one of the things that I think is a really funny story and, and crazy story is during Amparo, which we're referencing before, again, this is a, a live immersive experience that happened Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights in Miami. We did two shows per night. And during one of the shows, the we had a bunch of the actors were dressed up as Cuban militants from back in the day, like the green fatigues and the old rifles, which obviously are just dummy rifles, but they look real. And it's downtown Miami, right off Biscayne. So it's a high traffic area where if you didn't know what was going on, it was right behind Checkers, if you know where that is on Biscayne. And somebody was walking with their groceries and saw, there was like an outside staircase and saw a bunch of guys and women running up the stairs with these rifles. So they call the police and the police send the SWAT team. I was not there this night, thank God, because this would have been a disaster, but I heard about the, the next day. But the, the SWAT team comes with full SWAT van and the whole deal. Turn all lights wow. on, shut down the show. All these people paid good money for these tickets and everyone had to go oh, outside yeah. till they realized what was going on. And there was not an actual uh, threat to anybody and let them back in. And I think we gave everyone their money back and invited them to a different show. But it was one of those things just like, Jesus, this is what we do for a living. That's crazy. Wow. What a story. So what that was, a story. That's, that's unreal. Yeah. But as far as the campaigns go, usually we get ahead of it enough. And I'm not just saying, cause I don't want to say a, a fumble. If one comes to mind, I'll bring it up, but usually we'll make adjustments. Even when we put something out there, a sampling campaign, we, in the first week, we're getting feedback from the field of, Hey, this thing doesn't work, or this is not engaging, or people are not responding or whatever the case may be down to the outfits we're using or the, the giveaways or what have you. Yeah. That makes sense. And from your perspective, you have a lot of experience in the industry. Where do you see activations heading in the future? So I'm a glass half full kind of guy. So well, I'm going to preface what I'm about to say. I, I think people are eager to still be, be involved with experiences. I don't think large scale experiential is going to go away. I think it's, it is going to take some time. Obviously, the vaccine piece of this and then the consumer confidence piece after that, which is going to, I mm -hmm. think, take a little more time, probably in the next six months after the vaccine comes out, where people feel comfortable like, hey, I, I feel comfortable going out to uh, big events again. But I think People are yearning to go, and I could see it in Miami's all open right now, which is crazy given what's happened in the rest of the country. But I think it's also because people want to feel like they are going back to normal again. I, I'm speaking for myself and the people I've been speaking to. I think people are now getting fatigued from Zoom calls, but they're getting fatigued for not being able <laughs> to have that social interaction. So I, I think things will come back. We're not being naive either. When I say I'm being optimistic, like we're obviously looking at this very seriously and saying, what is realistic in terms of when we can actually look at this piece of our business coming back? And I think for not only the business aspect, but for just this is what we, if you're in this business, this is what you love to do. One of the reasons I do this is because mm -hmm. kind of building out those kind of campaigns and, and having that social interaction, which has been a void for some time. But yeah, I do think right. things will come yeah. back. It's just going to take some time. I could totally see that. And honestly, most people in the hospitality space are really in it for the passion. And that's the premise of this podcast, whisking it all, right? They put everything on the line to work in this industry. And most of it's passion first and hopefully money second, but it's a tough industry. So definitely respect the passion. Do you have any closing advice for people who are in the industry and maybe looking to branch off into something related, but less, less direct restaurant bar? Yeah, I guess my initial answer would be email or call me. If we have a role available, what we could talk about it. But yeah, there's so many opportunities out there. And especially coming out of the pandemic, I think there's going to be even more opportunities that come out of this in terms of roles that didn't exist before. So I think just keeping your options open and keeping an eye on 
how we come out of the pandemic and then what does the new normal look like? As much as I'm saying, I think all the, the events and people are going to start going back out. I think there's going to be other industries that are created out of this in the hospitality space. So I think just keeping an eye on what that looks like and keeping your options open is the best way to do it. And if it's something where a lot of those people within the ambassador space that we have hired primarily are from bars and restaurants, we do, sometimes we get them from other brands, but I, obviously I think getting someone involved with your organization or your family that doesn't have a notion of what that looks like, they're, I think they're going to be more excited and less jaded in the industry to go into something like this. Yeah. But yeah, call me or text me or email me is the easiest way. (laughs) Love it. And we'll put all your details out on this podcast as well when we release this episode. So definitely people will have a way to to reach you. One question that I had personally was I've always wondered how off-premise is a large percentage or in many cases, a majority of sales of a liquor brand. But I've always wondered how much of on-premise sales slash marketing will then affect or trickle down to off-premise. What does that split look like? And then do people make that decision where they drink a certain vodka because that's the one they chose at the liquor store? Or is it because they've seen it at restaurant XYZ and now they're buying that at the liquor store, right? Like the chicken and egg, what comes first? Are people making those decisions from that on-premise experience? Or do you think it's it's more about that just off-premise marketing? Yeah, no, the old saying goes that brands are built in the on-premise, which I believe that as well. When you're at a bar, this is not new news, but you're what you're buying, you might buy something different if you're at a liquor store. Like it's more of a, the badge value, obviously, mm-hmm. and you feel more proud ordering it or drinking it based on the brand messaging, what they stand for, what they invest in, so on and so forth. Obviously, the taste profile has a big piece of this as well as what you're drinking as far as the spirit itself or beer or wine or whatever. But yeah, as far as the off-premise is obviously the bigger volume play, but as far as the, where the, I think the larger opportunity from a spirits, beer, wine perspective is all primarily spirits in in wine, but is in the on-premise. So initially when this happened, Mm -hmm. obviously what's happened with the pandemic, there's been a huge shift in at home drinking and entertaining. We've seen a lot of what people are buying with a liquor store or Drizzly or any other e-commerce platform is the brands that they know. So the brands that they trust. So we've seen a lot of the ones, for example, like Grey Goose has been up just because people know what that is, as opposed to maybe a no-name vodka they wouldn't have known before. I just read an article about uh, Jose Cuervo, which they're definitely declining and now they're spiking just because I think a lot of that has to do with to-go cocktails and bars are used. They don't need to put a name brand in a lot of these things on. They're just using what they can from a value perspective. And Dewar's Scotch is another right. one where it was, the, the numbers were declining drastically and now it's stabilized. I think that's because of innovation, some other things, but I think it's also because it's a trusted brand and people have known it for years and it's something they know what to get in it. And it gives them a little bit of comfort through a very uncertain time. And have you seen certain trends categorically? Just off the top of my head, I don't know if this, I haven't actually seen the numbers, but from a restaurant perspective, Mezcal has been gaining a ton of popularity, I feel like in the last year or so, correct me if I'm wrong, but have you seen any category trends like that? I think Mezcal for sure has been spiking. I think bourbon continues to spike. This is something that's been going on for a little while now, but I think it's actually even escalated with the pandemic was low ABV cocktails. Because I think of people at home, if you're at home all day, you're drinking at different times of the day. And I know a lot of friends, myself included, especially not so much now, but at the beginning of the pandemic, the first six months, drinking at 5 p.m. was definitely condoned. And if you're doing that, you got to drink something on the lower ABV side. So I think those kind of things and people making drinks at home, just in terms of we're seeing on the Bacardi side, what they're purchasing from like a vermouth 
Prosecco, so on and so forth in those categories. Obviously making martinis and Negronis and so on and so forth. Gotcha. And so one one of the ways we love to end off the podcast is uh, with a segment called Last Day on Earth. So John, question for you is it's your last day on earth. What would be your chosen meal and your chosen drink? My chosen meal would be let's start with the drink because i gotta think about the meal for a second but i my chosen drink would be <laughs> a 50 50 oxley martini up with a twist stirred not shaken and i would probably have some kind of sushi dinner probably a lot of hand rolls i'm guessing that's oh, how about John, you it was awesome Ooh, i didn't prepare <laughs> let me think i didn't see that honestly question i think in. yeah okay i think for me it would probably be homemade pasta dish from my mom just because it'd be that nostalgic feeling and eating that amazing Italian sauce. I think it'd probably be some type of pasta dish. And in terms of a drink, yeah, that's a good one. I'm a big fan of, of whiskey and scotch in general, or even bourbon, maybe even... Something on the rocks? Yeah, something on the rocks. I'm trying to... Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Really, honestly, something on the rocks. But in terms of the meal, it'd definitely be a nice home-cooked dish, specifically pasta from the mom, I think. Fair enough. That makes sense. Sorry, Mom. Yeah. I didn't say the awesome. same. John, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Whisking It All. It was great chatting with you and really, I think our guests are going to get some great insights from the from the chat we had. So I just want to thank you for being on the show. Thank you for your time, man. It's great to see you. That was fun. Great to see you as well. Take care, John. Take care.